As we're turning there, I want to ask you this question. Which part of this statement that I'm going to make seems redundant to you? Which part seems redundant to you? To know him and to make him known. To know him and to make him known. Which part may be redundant? That's the motto of the seminary that I attended. And, you know, when you're an eager young Bible college student, you're an eager young seminarian, you are eager to get to the second part of that statement. To make him known. After all, that's why you're in Bible college or seminary, because you want to go into the world and tell him about Jesus. Let's go. But then, as you get out in the world, as we all do get out into the world, as life happens, and it happens for all of us, as each of us get involved in some sort of different ministry, and all that isn't as easy as we thought it would be, or we hoped that it would be, then we begin to realize the, the wisdom of these old sages who had journeyed long with the Lord who wrote this motto. They knew you couldn't skip the first part in order to get to the second part. Before you can make the Lord known, you've got to know Him. And if you get the first part right, if you know Him, it's so much easier to make Him known. It comes so much more naturally to you and to me to live out our Christian life. How often do you have that wish? Do you wish that living out the Christian life came more naturally to you? How often do you wish it came more naturally to give God the reverence of your soul? And to give God the devotion of your heart? To naturally give God the service of your hands and the praise of your lips? Listen, it's not that difficult for any of us to get to that place. It's accessible to all of us. It doesn't require a vast amount of resources. You have the Word of God in your hand. Hold it up in your hand. The Word of God in your hand. And you have the Spirit of God in your heart. So you're all set. I'm all set. Word of God in our hand. Spirit of God in our heart. We are all set to get to know God. The more we know Him, the more naturally it is for us. The easier it is for us to live out our Christian life. And that's all I want us to do this morning. As we come to Deuteronomy chapter 10, to just to get to know the Lord a little bit better. More of who He is. As He reveals Himself to be to us. And I want us to leave asking this question, how can I not love and serve and praise and worship a God like this one? So if you have your Bible open to Deuteronomy chapter 10, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the Word of the living God. Beginning in verse 14, this is Moses speaking to his people as they are preparing to enter into the promised land. And Moses says to them, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet, the Lord set His affection on your forefathers and loved them, and He chose you their descendants above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts therefore and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food for clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for, yourself, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. 
Fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Hold fast to Him and take your oaths in His name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were seventy in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask once again that You would bless the reading of Your Word and the hearing of Your Word as You promised to do so. Lord, as You turned water into wine so many years ago, we pray that Your Word would become wine to to just drench our souls. Father, that through Your Word, you, You would change and transform us, making us into people that You long and call for us to be. Lord, because we are people who are looking and longing to know and love You more. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. In the past few weeks, as we've been in Deuteronomy chapter 12, we've seen the greatness of God pictured in these verses. And we've also seen pictured in these verses a a, a vast uh, chasm. Here is God way up here, completely beyond us in every way. A God to whom, according to verse 14, belong the heavens. The heavens of the heavens, the highest of heavens, belong to God. A God, according to verse 17, who is the God of gods and the Lord of of all lords. He is great and mighty and awesome. That's who God is. That's how high He is. That's who we have seen Him to be. And then, There are people, humans, earth dwellers. That's us. And we're down here. And we've learned this, that the chasm between finite people and infinite God, it is so immense. But our amazing God, by His own choice, decided to to bridge that great chasm. Of all the dwellers on earth, of all the dwellers on earth, God chose Abraham, a man who had faith, who believed in God, and because of that, God counted him as righteous. God chose Abraham to be the special recipient of his love and his blessing. Abraham and his children, and his children's children, his children's children's children, all the way down to the present, to where we are right now in chapter 10. All of them, this present generation, recipients of the Lord's special favor. We see that sandwiched between verses 14 and 17 in verse 15. Yet the Lord set His affection on your forefathers and loved them. And He chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. So here's the question. Why? Why did God do it? Why did God choose to bridge that chasm? Why did He reach out, the God of gods, to people like us? Why did God not stay sequestered? in the halls of heaven, whatever that is, and wherever it is, beyond the bounds and limits of our universe, beyond the bounds and limits of our human imagination. Why did God God not remain hidden, unseeable, inaccessible? Why? An unknowable God. Why did God choose to reveal Himself to people like us? And through His divine revelation, just to to open the door 
to, to glimpse into, into heaven itself and to enter in a small way into the throne room of God and to see Him and His character and His nature. Why? Why did God do it? This quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer answers that question, and I hope Dietrich Bonhoeffer needs no introduction to you. If he does, look him up later. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, God is free not from human beings, but for them. God is free not from human beings, but for them. Christ is the word of God's freedom. God is present. That is not an eternal non-objectivity, but to put it quite provisionally for now, God is haveable. He is graspable in the word within the church. That's the answer. God wants to be had by us. God wants to be grasped by us. God wants to be known by us. And so God freely releases this revelation of Himself because it is not God's goal to be free from us, from people. You know, it would not be a stretch of the imagination if that were a goal of God. Man, God would have it so much easier if He didn't have us to deal with. In this world, in the mess that we've made of it, if He could just be free from us, no, that is not the goal of God. In ways that I don't understand, you and I, sinful though we are, we are not nuisances to God. You know, I'm the youngest, and the youngest always knows what it is like to be a nuisance. Go on, go on, get away, get away. Get out of here. We're not nuisances to God. He wants us to have access to Him. Come here, come here, come here. That's what God says to us. Reminds us of that in verse 15. It's in His nature and it's His character to reach out, to reach down in love, to set His affection on human beings and be determinedly set to save us. Zephaniah chapter 3. It captures God's feelings about the people He loves, about the people He is redeeming and will someday completely redeem. And this is what He says. Zephaniah chapter 3. This is the Word of God. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said in Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Okay, this is your God and my God. Do you know Him this way? As a God who has this goal for you that you would be a person who would sing aloud. That's what God wants for you. That you would be a person who would shout a person who would rejoice with all your heart. What goodness and what grace must God have for us? Must He pour out on us to make us such people of utter joy? Is this how you know Him? As one who is with you, as one who rejoices over you, who delights in you, as one who exalts over you with singing. 
You know, you and I, as God's people, we make God so happy that He bursts out in song. And the song that God sings is not a dirge, like Hee Haw. Do you remember Hee Haw? The song there? Doom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression. Excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Doom, despair, and agony on me. Is that the song that God sings over us? A dirge like that? No! It's a song of joy and exaltation. Now you know yourself. And I know myself. And that's enough said. That God sings over us. Now you know God. And this is how He feels about you and me. Is He not an amazing God? Is He not? You can know Him this way. It's for our good that He wrote down the law as a guide for our lives. Look in verse 13. Observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. God does not mean to punish us with His law. He doesn't mean to ruin our lives with His commands and His decrees. He means to bless us with them. He's looking out for our good. Do you know God this way? Now look in verse 17. It tells us there that God is a God who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He, is, he shows no partiality and he, he accepts no bribes. Now I am going to assume this is a very important verse because it is repeated over and over in the Old Testament and it's repeated again in some form like 12 times in the New Testament. God is completely impartial. Now, when I was growing up, at mealtime, my two brothers and I, three of us, would sit at the table, and my mother would put our glasses on the counter where all three of us could see them. And into those glasses, she would pour milk or orange juice or Coke, whatever it was, so that we could all see that each one of us got exactly the same amount. Every meal, and my mother still talks about it. She reminded me about it last week. It's not been forgotten. Why? Why did she do that? I don't know, but at some point, one of us must have said, well, that's not fair. You gave Mike more than me. You gave Keith more than you gave me. You must love them better. You know, starts early. Then we grew up. And we went to all the high school ball games together. And if a ref made a call that seemed to favor our opponents, we joined with everyone else in the stands and shouted, Find us a rope. Find us a tree. We're going to hang a referee. And we, we would have done it in West Virginia. I'm not kidding you. Now look, college football, full swing. Some of you have had some thoughts similar to that this weekend or last week. <laughs> and then history repeats itself. I've got one child who shall rename, remain nameless except for the nickname that was given to her by her other siblings. Now, I can say her because there are four girls and you're not really sure which one I may be referring to, but the, the nickname that they gave this one child was Josephina. Josephina. Now, you remember Joseph in the Old Testament, don't you? Seemed to be favored by his father, right? Best loved by his father. He's the only one that got that coat of many colors. Joseph was greatly favored. 
And so my four children thought that this one child of mine was like Joseph, and so they named her Josephina. Because they believed that this one child could get away with anything. She could get away with things that they could never get away with. And so they accused me, the other four, of being a partial parent to this particular child. And sometimes with a laugh, (laughs) other times with frustration and disgust. But I can assure you, I love all of my children equally. Are any of them here today? (laughs) Two, three, love them all. But we're so hypersensitive to fairness. We are. We want impartial judges. We want everyone to be treated fairly, treated the same, but we just can't seem to find impartiality. We can't find it in parents. We can't find it in referees. We can't find it in teachers or judges. Uh, Someone who is completely impartial. It doesn't exist, and so we are frustrated. But God, God tells us here, He is one who is completely impartial. And He can't be bribed, He can't be bought off to make an unfair or unjust decision. Neither is God a winker. He doesn't look at us and say, oh, it's okay this time. Wink, wink. Or God doesn't look at one particular one of us and say, oh, I see it's you doing it. Well, it's okay this time. Wink, wink. doesn't happen. God's standard never changes at any time for anyone. God's standard never changed at any time for anyone. Holiness is what He is after always. Right? Holiness. It's what God is after always. God can't be bribed. You can't slip God something so that He will relax His standard for you just a little bit or overlook it or look the other way. Even His chosen people, Israel. No. God doesn't cut deals. Lord, how about if I'm really, really, really good and I get 99% out of 100? Nope. God is impartial. He accepts no bribes, either 100% perfection or complete failure. So that represents or presents a real dilemma for us, doesn't it? A real dilemma for us and for every person. We are completely unable, you and I, completely unable to meet God's impartial, holy standards. And so, God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves He sent Jesus Christ to be for us what we could not be, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Because Jesus was holy perfection. And since holy perfection is what God requires, it's His standard, God accepts Jesus. And Jesus is willing to stand in our place, to be before God what we can't be before Him. And so God, as you know, accepts Christ's sacrifice as the 100% perfect requirement to meet His holy standard. And He accepts you and me and anyone who in faith believe that Christ is the perfect, spotless Son of God, Lamb of God, slain for us. And see, that's why we love this attribute of God. Because God is perfectly impartial. He is also perfectly just. And because God is perfectly just, He won't change on us. He's not capricious. He is perfectly faithful and dependable. He won't change the rules. He won't change the standard on us. So He comes in, oh Lord, we thought you wanted this. God is never going to send us a system update. Never. Because His standard never changes. 
Here's God's standard. And here God's standard will remain for all people of all time. And He sent Jesus to meet that standard for us. Is that not good news? And so how do you respond to this attribute? When I say to you, people of God, God, our God shows no partiality. Our God, as it says in the New Testament, is not a respecter of persons. If you are not absolutely blown away by that statement, that quality of God, if you are knocked, not knocked down, or if you don't at least have this compulsion, even if it's a compulsion inside of you that, 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 that you've got to suppress because you are in a, a PCA church, but if you don't have the compulsion somewhere in you to stand up and shout, Amen, then it's quite possible that you do not understand the gospel. Because I'm telling you, when I say our God is not a respecter of persons, these are shouting words. And if you don't want to shout, or if you're thinking, well, that is so nice. What a nice character quality of God to have. Because, you know, there are just so many down and out needy people in the world. So glad that God is not a respecter of persons. If you're thinking that, how nice it is of God for other people, guess what? You're something that God is not. You are a respecter of persons. And you know who you respect? Yourself. You think you are one that doesn't really need God to be this way. If God were a respecter of persons, if He were a respecter of persons, you think you would be okay. Because you think, in some way, that... Uh, that if God were a, a, a respecter of persons, He He would re- respect you. If God invited you to to His house for dinner, it wouldn't hurt His image socially. You would be a perfect dinner guest. You wouldn't ask anything. You wouldn't require anything. You wouldn't even ask for the leftovers. No, you would be a perfect dinner guest. No trouble, no bother. So even if the Lord were a respecter of persons, you would be okay. Guess what? You would not be okay. You would not be okay. You think, well, he would respect me. He would be partial to me. No, he would not be. We think so highly of ourselves. If we strike up a conversation with a homeless person in Hardy's parking lot who's asking us for money. You know, if we don't pass him by, If we do engage Him, it's not difficult for us to to have this happen. I spoke to this homeless person. Uh, 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 Oh, oh, here it goes. (laughs) What a good boy am I speaking to that homeless man. You and I, when we do that, we are a respecter of persons. Until you magnify how great we feel about ourselves when we do something like that. You magnify that an infinite number of times and then you just might be able to begin to understand how Christ had to condescend to leave heaven and to come and pitch His tent in the campsite beside ours. You know, you and I, we are like those stereotypical bums that we've seen in the movies and television shows. Here we are in the alley. We are. And we're huddled around that trash can. In that trash can, the fire is burning. That's keeping us warm. When up walks the king, 
the king of the universe. And here he comes to talk to us. And here he comes to help us. Now don't forget that Queen Elizabeth herself is huddled right around there with us. And all her dignity and, and all her, her wealth and refinement, even her gowns are tattered. They are. Her little long gloves that she wears up to here, no fingers in them. All of us huddled around that trash can in the alley. And you know what else? We're not even friendly homeless bums. Okay? We're not even friendly homeless bums. We are bums who would say to Jesus when he walked up to us, Hey buddy! What are you doing here? Get out! We don't want you here. We don't want you around our fire. But Jesus won't leave. He says, yes, but I have come to help you. And so the bums pull out their knives and say, go on! We don't need your help. We don't want your help. Get out of here before we cut you. See, that's more of a scriptural picture. Scripture says that we were enemies of God. And enemies would definitely pull out a knife. Look in Romans chapter 6. Or just in your bulletin. And what we read uh, after the prayer of confession this morning. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, either from your bulletin or from your Bible. I'm going to read it again. It says, you see, I'm going to let you turn. I hear the pages flipping. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, see, there, there we are, nothing we can do for ourselves, we're helpless bums. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if, while we were God's what? Enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? We were enemies of God. That's the truth. Hateful toward God. Hostile. Opposing Him. And even if the only thing even if the only thing we ever oppose or refuse to accept is what God says is true of us. And what God says is true of us is that we are helpless, powerless sinners who cannot save ourselves, who must have Christ to save us, or we will be lost. Even if that's the only thing that we oppose, you may be the kindest, sweetest, fudge-making, cookie-baking, hugging, kissing, blue-haired, lovable grandmother in the world, and you're still an enemy of God. Because you're an enemy of His truth. You stand opposed to what God says is true about you. To what God tells you is the only help you have available to you. You stand in opposition to that, and so you're an enemy of God. And so that's why our Jesus that we think of is so kind and loving and floaty, you know? <laughs> he spoke so sharply and with such passion to the Pharisees. And what did he say to them? Woe to you, Pharisees. What did he say to them? You are sons of hell. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to anybody? 
You are sons of hell. That's what Jesus said because these men thought God would be partial to him because they stood opposed to God's way of salvation. They opposed it. They tried to defeat it. They were enemies of God. Enemies of God. But guess what? There's good news for God's enemies, right? Good news for God's enemies. While we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God through Jesus Christ because God is not a respecter of persons. And His way of salvation, it is for all people without partiality, but it must be His way. And so can it really be true? Can it really be true? Nothing in my hands I bring Simply to the cross I cling. Can that be true? Really? Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Yeah, it is true. And anyone can cling to the cross. It's amazingly true. And can it be? And can it be? Amazing love. How can it be? That thou, my God, would die for me. And so now we know him a little better. I hope you know him a little bit better. This is who he is. A great, glorious God, our impartial God. So let's talk, and we're finishing right now, a little bit about the second part of that motto, making Him known. Let's talk about living out our Christian life now in light of who we know God to be. And I want you to think right now of something that God has asked you to do, something that's in His Word. I don't care, pick anything. could be turning the other cheek. could be loving your neighbor as yourself. could be living a life of purity. It could be praying about all things. I don't care, but you pick something. Pick something in your mind that you know God has asked you to do. Or two or three things. Now let me ask you this. Is what God has asked of you more than what is reasonable and right? Is what God has asked of you more than reasonable and right? And what adjustments would you ask God to make to make it fair to you? Uh, Lord, just change this, to, just to be fair to me. What less could God ask of you? What less? What less could God ask of you and still be faithful to His righteous holiness? And since all the commands of God are good and right and perfect, and since they are given to us for our good, does not uh, not obeying the commandment, or as we obey the commandments, does that not ensure our own peace and contentment? And when we fight against a life of obedience, aren't we really just fighting against ourselves and our own best interest? And since God has loved you so much, should you do less for God than He asked, even if He never asked you to do it? When we know God, making Him known, and living out our Christian life becomes so much easier. And when we know Him, our joy becomes so rich and our love so devout and loyal that we should be ready to give Him our all no matter what He asks or even if He didn't ask for it. This is how life-changing it is to first know God. This is why the second part of that statement really is redundant. Because if you know God, that's it. If you know God, that's it. That's first. That's most important. From that knowledge, everything else flows so much more naturally. So here's the final question. Final couple of questions. Do you really want to know God? Only you can answer that. 
Do you really want to know it? Does that interest you? Or is it something you want to put off for later? Well, I'll get to know God later. You have to answer that. But if the answer to that question is yes, then you have another decision to make. How are you going to do it? What commitments are you going to have to make to get to know God through His Word and prayer? What changes are you going to have to make so that you can get to know God through His Word and through prayer? Whatever it is, whatever those commitments are, make them. Whatever those changes are, make them. Do whatever you can. Do whatever you can to know God. And the rest will flow from that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you again for your word. And we thank you again that your word is first and foremost given to us as a revelation of who you are. We come to your word, Lord, in search of you. Because you have not remained sequestered in the halls of heaven, inaccessible and shut off from us. But you... Lord, because you want us to know you and have you and grasp you, you have revealed yourself to us freely through your word and through the person of Jesus Christ so we can know you, the one and only true and living God. So I pray, Lord, that now your spirit, who truly doesn't dwell all of your people, that your spirit would be pushing and prodding, whispering in our ear, get to know him more, get to know me more, get to know me more. Father, that may be May that be the, the leading of the Spirit so that every person seated here, Lord, will leave from this place with this commitment. I want to know God better. I want to know you better, Lord. You're so great, so glorious. This is part of who you are, an impartial God. Thank you that that's who you are to me. And because of that, what it means for me. Eternal salvation. So do this in us and through us, we pray. Continue to amaze us by your unbelievable love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.